0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. You can be seated, let's pray together. Father, we, we praise the name of Jesus. Lord, our desire and we know your desire is for peoples from around the world to praise that name. And so, Father, we pray that you would use our church as as a catalyst for missions not only in our community, but around the world. Father, as we just saw in the video about the Baptist Global Response, we, we know that we are living in a world of so much pressing need. And so, Father, we pray that you would be uh, at work, through the love and compassion of your people, using that love to open hearts to the gospel, uh, Father, we pray uh, for our students and the incredible weekend that they've had. We pray that you would take the seeds of the gospel that have been sown uh, this weekend and that you would bring forth a wonderful fruit in in them and through them as they are missionaries uh, among their friends and on their campuses or wherever they are uh, and so Lord. Lord, now we come now to your word and we pray that you would, would work in a powerful way as we, as we study your word today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work and move deeply within our hearts. Lord, we, we need you as we come to your word right now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans. If you are new today, uh, we have been walking through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we have come to chapter 14. We're closing in on the end of the book. We've just got a few weeks uh, left, and then we're going to transition to uh, Thanksgiving and and Christmas themes uh, towards the holidays. But um, we're going to look this morning uh, at chapter 14 and really, really through the beginning of chapter 15. And so we're going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 14 and then transition and and read verses 5 through 7 of chapter 15. So really all the way from 14.1 through 15.13, what Paul is doing is giving an extended meditation on unity in the church. So he begins that in chapter 14, and so let's look there uh, first, and I'll ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read it together. Romans 14, and beginning with verse one. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel, If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now let's transition to uh, chapter 15 and let's look at verses five through seven. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You can be seated. It was great uh, this week to see a post that Wilson made about the one-year anniversary of he and Brittany's engagement. Did some of you see that post that Wilson, Wilson made? It was very romantic. He was, uh, I think you were kneeling down, right? Yeah, kneeling down, very romantic, and proposing to his bride. It's hard to imagine like they just got engaged A year ago, and now they're married, and he's one of the pastors in our church, and you've had a busy, busy uh, year. So uh, I'm, I'm sure, like all newlyweds, you're discovering that living with another human being has its challenges. Um, And so it was certainly that way with me and Melissa. And, uh, you know, early in our marriage, mainly like, you know, little things, but just the things that that go with kind of living with another person all the time. Uh, One struggle that we had early in our marriage had to do with the thermostat. Um, because I like the house cooler and she wanted it warmer. And so, it it seemed like at at the beginning of our marriage, uh, she was wanting to kind of nudge nudge it up a little bit to make it a little bit warmer in the house. And I wanted to kind of nudge it down a little bit to make it cooler. Well, let me tell you, over the years, I, I have won that battle because now, not only does she like it as cool as me, she might even like it even cooler than me in the house. So she's, she's come around on, on that one. I have been less successful on the issue of packing. So when we go somewhere, um, I like to travel light, and my sweet bride likes to travel Not light uh, when we travel. Uh, And so, you know, because like she's got to make sure that she has the right clothes for like every possible situation or anything unexpected or any contingency that should um, arise. She wants to make sure that she has the right wardrobe. Well, last week at the end of chapter 13, we saw Paul was talking about wardrobes, right? Right? He was talking about the sets of clothes that we are to take off and what we are to put on. And so last week we finished at the the end of chapter 13 where Paul says this in verses 12 through 14. He said, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on... The armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, notice there in verse 13 that one of the things that we are to put off that we're to cast aside, part of that old wardrobe of sin was quarreling, right? So he talks about, you know, things like drunkenness, and he talks about sexual immorality and things like that. Those things are part of of the old set of clothes that we are to cast aside. But in that same list, he puts quarreling. And jealousy, these things are to to be cast aside. They don't belong on a believer anymore. They are part of that that old wardrobe. We are to put on the armor of light. We are to put on Christ. And and Paul tells the church at Rome here that one of the things that they're, they're to put aside is quarreling because he knows that there is some quarreling. That is going on in this church. Now Paul has hinted at this. Throughout Romans. As we've talked about. If you've been with us throughout this journey. Through Romans. You know at many points. He's kind of hinted at it. But now in chapters 14. And for at least half of of chapter 15. He's going to do an extended meditation. On unity. And And as he says in chapter 12. And verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. So this chapter is about why we should do that and, and how we do that. It's about unity. First of all, unity because of Christ's salvation. Unity because of Christ's salvation. So let's look at verse one of chapter 14. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay, so there were two groups of people in the church at Rome that were kind of at odds with one another. Um, he, Paul refers to them in this section as the strong and the weak. Now, he doesn't mean weak as a put down. What he's talking about is that there were people in that church whose consciences were weak. And they were easily pricked. They were easily offended. And and the situation was that the church was made up of people. uh, Some came from a Jewish background, um, and so they had been raised with the Torah. And they had been raised with all kinds of of dietary regulations. They had been raised to observe certain uh, Jewish holidays and things like that. Well, Well, now these people had become followers of Jesus. They accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but their consciences were still weak. And they wanted to cling to some of these old traditions. They did not believe that they were saved by doing so. Now, that is a very different situation than what Paul was dealing with at Galatia. So, in Galatians, there were false teachers who were teaching that in order to be saved, that you had to carry out these old uh, Jewish traditions and laws. That was not the case at the church at Rome. Okay, these people um, in the weak category, they were believers, but they wanted to to cling to dietary laws and to uh, the observance of certain Jewish holidays. And more than that, they wanted the other people in the church who had not been raised like them to practice these things as well. So that was a problem. The other group that, that Paul refers to as the strong... These were primarily people that had come out of a Gentile background. They were not raised with any of these Jewish dietary laws or the observance of certain Jewish holidays or things like that. Um, and so th- they were being impatient with, those, with, with their weaker brothers and sisters, and they were like, hey, you know, just kind of let go of that stuff. And so there was some impatience on their part. What Paul is doing in this chapter is he's seeking to bring these two groups of people together. And he's going to speak to both groups. And so he is saying to weaker brothers and sisters, you know, you can continue to carry on your traditions and things like that, but you should not require of other people what God does not require. And he is saying to the stronger brothers and sisters, you need to be patient with your weaker brothers brothers and sisters. And that's what he's saying here in verse 1. He is addressing the strong, and he says here, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So Paul is addressing uh, the people who are strong. He is clearly a one, one of them, as we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 15. But, and Paul is saying to them, listen, let's accept our weaker brothers and sisters. I know you feel like they have some hangups about these things and you don't have these hangups, but let's be patient with them. Let's allow them to, to, to grow and let's, let's accept them and let's welcome them and let's not quarrel over non-essentials. Let's not measure on minors and quarrel over our opinions on these non-essential Issues. Now listen, there are essentials. That, that believers have to agree on doctrinally in order to have real fellowship and unity. I mean, we have, we have got to, you know, believe that in the truthfulness of the Bible. If we don't believe that, like, we don't have anywhere to stand, you know? We, 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 we must believe in the divinity of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ and the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ and the fact that Christ is, is coming again. We we must believe on the, the Trinity and essential doctrines like that. But you know, there, there are many doctrines that are non-essential, where Bible believing Christians, you know, may have uh, different, uh, different takes on. Okay, and so we don't wanna we don't wanna argue over those things or or make those things a, a, a point of of division because they're non-essential. <clears throat> The past few years, uh, our, our culture has seen sort of the, the rise of, of essential oils. And uh, these these little bottles began making their way into our house a few years ago. And, uh, you know, when, when Melissa and the girls first started um, uh, bringing in the, the oils, let me tell you, I was an oil skeptic at that point. Um, in fact, you know, I was, I, was, I was very cynical about it. I was like, you know, why? I mean, this is a bunch of hocus pocus. And, you know, why, why, why are you bringing these, these bottles of oil in? Well, let me tell you, I I am a convert. Okay, I've done a 180, a 180 on on the oils because I have I have wrestled with allergies all my life, um, and the peppermint oil beats pills any day of the week uh, to try to deal with my allergies. But you know they're they're called they're called essential oils, but that's really that's not quite the truth, right? They can be helpful oils, right? But they're really not. Essential oils, but to put you know non-essential oil, oils on the label would not be probably a, a, a good marketing uh, technique. But so they're 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 non-essential, and and there are things in the church you know that are essential. There are essential doctrines, and then there are non-essentials. And and Paul knows here they're dealing they're they're arguing over something that is non-essential and he's telling them to stop. He says in verses 2 and 3, he says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains fast judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words, they are to be united because of Christ's salvation. All of these people in this church have experienced that common salvation. They, have all, they are all welcomed and accepted because of the work of Christ. I mean, praise God. You we, we realize that because of Jesus, that God loves you and accepts you based on the performance of Jesus for you, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you in the resurrection, because of that, you are welcomed. You are accepted by God. And so he's saying here to both groups, who are you not to welcome and accept one another when God has accepted and welcomed both of you? In verse four, he says, who are you To pass judgment on the servant of another. It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now earlier in Romans, we talked about our standing in Christ, right? Let's look at um, chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Where Paul said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I mean, brothers and sisters, this is who we are in Christ. We have been justified by faith. That means we have been made right with God through trust in Jesus. Right, We, we, are, we are, have a right standing now before a holy God. There used to be a chasm that separated sinners like us from a holy God. But now, praise God, that chasm has been bridged all because of Jesus, all because of the, the work of Christ on the cross. And so now we have been made right. Sinners like us have been made right with a holy God through faith in Christ. And so now... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God looks at us as believers, he doesn't uh, see your sin. He sees his son and your faith in his son. And you are clothed in the righteousness of his son. And so therefore, you are at peace with a holy God. And now, because of Jesus, you have access 24-7 to God by faith and you are standing in grace. In grace, that is your position. So therefore, we can do what? We can rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We know that the trials of this life is temporary. That we've got forever with Jesus, that he's coming again, that our future is in glorified imperishable bodies forever with the King in a world without sin, suffering and death. Praise God. We can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So he is telling both of these groups of people, stop Quarreling, start rejoicing. And so, unity because of Christ's salvation. Second, unity because of Christ's lordship. Unity because of Christ's lordship. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, God sees our hearts. God doesn't just see our actions. God sees the motivation for our actions. And that's what he's saying to these people. He's saying, look, you know, some of you are holding to these days and you're holding to certain traditions with your with your diet and you're doing that because you feel like that honors God. Some of you don't observe these things and, and, you're, and, and you're honoring God as well. Like you should not be looking down on one another. There are so many issues like this in the Christian life. I mean, so some of some of you feel like maybe uh, social media, like that's something that you should not be on. Like you just kind of need to leave that out of your life entirely. That's it's not it's you know it's not good for you. And so you abstain from that in honor of the Lord. Some of you feel like you know what I can I can be on you know Facebook or. Instagram or Twitter or whatever, you know, and I can do it in moderation and I can do it without sinning. And you know what? The, both, of the, both of those are, are if, if, if the desire is to honor God, then we should not look down on one another. You know, parents, when parents make choices about uh, schools, <clears throat> some of you uh, as parents, you know, you made the choice as a family uh, for your kids to be in Christian school. And that, that can be a decision that can be God-honoring. Others of you made the decision that, you know what, we want our kids to be a light for Christ on their public school campus, and that is a God-honoring decision. Some of you made the decision to homeschool, and that is a God-honoring decision. Like, like we should not be, those are, nobody should be looking down on others, on, and, on matters where there is no clear right or wrong as far as as scripture is, is concerned. So Paul is saying here, don't look down on your brother or sister who has made a different choice than you on a matter that is non-biblical because you're not their Lord. <laughs> Jesus is. Verses seven through nine. He says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Um, Boy, does this cut against the grain of our culture. You know where everybody wants to say, hey, I'm, I'm my, my own king, my own queen. It's all about me. Um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm living for myself. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you are not living for yourself. And furthermore, you don't belong to yourself. It means that you've yielded control of every area of your life to Jesus. He gets to be king. He gets to reign. We sung a while ago, he reigns. Well, if Jesus is your Lord, he reigns. And that means in every area of your life. It it, it means that, um, that he reigns over your thought life. He reigns over your sex life. He reigns over your mouth and the words that you say. He reigns over your marriage. He reigns over your use of money. He reigns when you are at home and when you are at work and when you are at school or when you are at church. Jesus is Lord. The Bible says we are not our own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of Jesus and he is Lord. He says in verses 10 through 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I love what um, I'm seeing certain uh, Christian Athletes, Carson Wentz and others, wearing the, the ball caps and the t-shirts that say A-O-1. Audience of one. Right? That's what Paul is saying here. We are, we are to live our lives for God's glory, for ultimately for an audience of one. And that simplifies life a whole lot, doesn't it? Three, unity because of Christ's example. Unity because of Christ's example. So let's look at chapter 15 now and verses 1 through 3. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Thank God that Jesus wasn't into pleasing himself or we would have been doomed. Now Jesus left the comfort and the glory of heaven to come and bear a crown of thorns and to die on a bloody cross for you and me. Jesus wasn't into pleasing himself. He was into pouring out himself and ultimately pouring out his blood because he loved us. And so Paul says we should follow the example of Christ. Christ wasn't into pleasing himself. And so for us, as we relate to others, the question is never, what do I have the right to do? The question is, what would best show love to my brother and sister? And how can we win a lost world? How can we show love for a lost world? Jesus came to do what? To seek and to save what was lost. That's you and me. He emptied himself to come to us. Instead of pleasing himself, he he emptied himself and he came and was born in a baby in a manger and lived a sinless life and, 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 and endured all of the despising and the abuse that came in this sinful world and ultimately took evil and sin on himself so that we could be saved. So instead of being into pleasing ourselves, right, and asserting our own rights and our own uh, opinions and our own preferences and things like that, the issue is how can I show love to my brother or sister and how can we love a lost world the way that Jesus did? How can we empty ourselves, surrender, surrender our rights so that others can be won to Christ the way that Jesus surrendered his rights so that we could be saved? So Paul did this all the time in his ministry. When you read the book of, of Acts and, and, and his letters, it's, it's clear. Like, Paul was incredibly flexible about giving up, you know, his rights and preferences and all of that. He was incredibly flexible about giving any of that. He was flexible about everything but the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, verses 19 and following And so, when he was in a situation where he was around a lot of Jewish people, like he had been, he, well, he was himself the way well, he had been raised with all of these, you know, dietary laws and traditions and things like that. Then Paul would Paul would, would do that because he didn't want to he didn't want to erect another barrier that would prevent those people from coming to Christ. When he was around Gentiles, didn't hold those traditions because again, he did not want to put barriers up that would make it even harder for them to to come to Christ. He was flexible about everything but the message of the gospel. But when it came to methods of of winning people to Christ, there was a great deal of flexibility depending upon the situation that he was in. Now listen, because Paul Paul knew, it's not about me, it's not about my preferences. It's not about my want-tos. It's about winning people to Christ. How can I best win them to Christ? How can the gospel best penetrate this group of of, of people? So missionaries do this all the time. All the time. Like when they go to another country, they don't go thinking that the people that they're there to win to Christ are going to learn their language they learn the language of the people that they are there to win. The missionary makes the sacrifices to learn another language. They do not show up in another culture in another country and expect those people to to dress like they're used to dressing. If they're American missionaries, they do not expect the people that they're there to win to dress like twenty first century Americans. It, it, they they adopt the, the, the traditions of the people. Lottie Moon was a, was a, a pioneer in this regard because she began to, to dress like, like a Chinese woman. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they are there to... Missionaries yield. They give up their own, like, preferences and the way they've been raised in order to win other people to, to Christ. They they don 't they don't expect the people that they 're there to win to, to, so, to suddenly adopt you know 21st century American worship styles right they, they, The people can worship in a way that 's culturally appropriate for, uh, for, for them as long as the gospel is is preached and the, the gospel is is sung and Christ is lifted up and, and then the message of the gospel is is central so Churches have to think like missionaries as well, especially in the culture that we are living in today. This week I saw some stats that absolutely uh, blew me away about younger people, about young adults, millennials in our culture. Just think about this. 59% of millennials, that's people roughly ages 22 to 35, okay, people in their 20s and 30s, 59% of these people who were raised in a church have dropped out. I want you to think about that. Because this this stat is not even about millennials who were not raised in church, okay? (laughs) Because... Very few, a tiny percentage of them are, are, are in church. This is, this is almost 60% of those who were raised in church that have dropped out. Only two in 10 Americans under 30 believe attending a church is important or worthwhile. 35% of millennials have an anti-church stance, believing the church does more harm than good. Millennials are the least likely age group to a Chintin church by far. It's not even close. Now, this, these are staggering statistics. And what they tell us is that if churches like ours don't get serious, because the, these statistics, a lot of them are reflected in our own church. And what that means is that if churches don't begin to think like missionaries— Their ultimate trajectory is decline and ultimately death. Here's good news, okay? There are Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, gospel-centered churches all across our country that are bursting at the seams with young people, including millennials. But they are very intentional about it. They're very intentional about ministry to that area. They structure for that. They staff for that. They program for that. And they are on a mission to reach people. And they've been willing to give up some of their own preferences and want-tos in order to reach others the way that Jesus came for us. And so unity because of Christ's example Fourth, unity for God's glory. Unity for God's glory. Verses uh, five through seven. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Of God. Who is this for? What is the ultimate reason for unity? He tells us in verse 6 that together you may with one voice do what? Glorify God. Verse 7: welcome one another as Christ has welcome you. For what? For the glory of God. Ultimately, what is at stake? And the unity of the church is nothing less than the glory of God. When the church is together, God is glorified when the church is divided. The name of Jesus is dragged through the dirt and an unbelieving world finds the gospel to be unbelievable because they see the church behaving like the world. Jesus says in the high priestly prayer of John 17 when he, when he prays for future believers he says there in John 17, 20, and 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, present day believers. And he prays for us. He prays for the church today. What? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What enables lost people to believe that the Father truly sent the Son? The love and unity of believers. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, I heard Mark, Mark Dever who pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church in, in Washington speak the other day. Um, this is one of those churches that is bursting uh, at the seams with with twenty somethings and thirty somethings. And and he said the other day, right after church, a young woman handed him a letter. Um, and among the many wonderful things that it said, it said this: This young woman wrote this letter to her pastor, and she said this: One year ago today, I was not a Christian. I had never heard the gospel. I did not know who Christ was or what he had done for me. One year ago today, I went out with four very surface level friends, drank more than I ought to have, and was in an abusive relationship and went home crying on my 21st birthday. This year, on my birthday, I was surrounded by around 40 people Who genuinely care about my heart and want what is best for me and most glorifying to the Lord. About 30 of these people are part of our church family. I have no explanation of how I am so integrated into such an incredible community of so many people. It is so vastly undeserved and so clearly the Lord's kindness and mercy to provide not only community, but one as rich as this. It is so sweet to be equipped to share the truth of scripture with my unbelieving friends, my desires, my affections, my habits, my relationships, honestly, my whole life has been changed this year. God used this church body to save my life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there is such power in the body of Christ when we are together. There is such a, a witness to an unbelieving world, to, to, to people who, are, who do not yet know you, just like this young woman did not know you a little over a, a year ago. But you, you use the power of the gospel and you use the love of your people for her and for one another as, as a means of opening her heart to the message of the gospel. And Father, as we see here in, in Romans 14 and, and 15, what's at stake in the unity of the church at Rome and the unity of our church in any local church? What is at stake is is your glory. Lord, we want we want your your name to be honored. And we want to conduct ourselves towards one another in a way that is going to honor Christ and in a way that is going to show forth the love of Jesus, seen in the love of his people for one another and the love that we have for the lost, that, Lord, your spirit would make that compelling. Compelling. That more and more people could be one to you that more and more people could be giving praise to you and thanks to you, and that your name would be more and more lifted high and exalted. And we pray it in Jesus' name. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need we get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.